I'm just trying to set up my. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. This is Neeja Reddy Malera. I'm the VP for Genetic Counseling at Map My Genome. Welcome to Genomic Gapshap episode number 42. And I have the pleasure of having with me here Anu Acharya, CEO of Map My Genome, and Dr. Jenny uh, Prabhu. She is uh, an MD in pediatrics and internal medicine. Dr. Jenny, welcome uh, to our uh, genomic, uh, genomic Gapshap. And we're going to talk about longevity today. So very excited for this conversation with both of you, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, have the pleasure of picking your brain on this interesting topic uh, that has been going around, and there's a lot of research. So I have a bunch of questions lined up, but I want to begin with just asking both of you first um, about a little bit about your journey, um, you know, this far today. So I'll uh, let Anu, I'll let you start first. Hey, thanks, Nija. I think it's good to see. Genomics Gapshap evolved. I think we, we started about a year ago and, and now it's great to see that and, and welcome Dr. Uh, Jenny. Um, so I think just as a, a, a little, uh, you know, little bit about my journey, I think many, many people know that, you know, I graduated from IIT Kharagpur and, and was in the US and around 23 years ago exactly, which is in interesting because it's 23 uh, chromosomes that we have. Uh, we started Osimum Biosolutions, which was a company also in genomics, um, and it was in the US and in India. And then we went on to doing three acquisitions in um, in Germany, in the Netherlands, and the US, and we became one of the largest genomics services players worldwide. Uh, what was interesting at that time was the fact that uh, genomics was used primarily in research, was used also by pharma companies and the FDA and others to be able to look at it in terms of how it can be used in the clinical uh, space. Uh, but what was also emerging at that time was the fact that consumer genomics had also started to come about, right? So we had some companies in the US that had started to come about uh, at that point of time. But when we looked at the whole space of personalized medicine and where it was headed, I think what was interesting was that we wanted to make sure that this could be something that we can use with data that comes from Indian uh, Indian population, which was a large majority of the population, but yet we couldn't find that uh, data that was there, even in the databases that we were using at that point of time. So I think that was where we uh, thought that, you know, doing something in which would involve, you know, looking at data that comes from the Indian population was number one. The second thing was that when you look at most of where healthcare is, I think most of the spend was in um, you know, once you became very sick, you go to the doctor and then, you know, it's too late. And by the time I think the doctor is trying their best and you can maybe increase their lifespan or the time on earth, but it doesn't really improve their quality of life. So I think mm -hmm. one of the things that we were looking at was saying, can we look at prevention? And that's where about 10 years ago, we started Map My Genome. And Map My Genome uh, was started with a simple you know, concept saying, can we start with a product that will come to somebody's house instead of you going to a clinic or a hospital, um, be able to order it online, get that kit in the mail and be able to do that. So we started with that. Today, of course, I think we've, we've evolved. Uh, we've evolved towards a space where we are looking at longevity as, as one of the prime areas of where we can focus our energies in the preventive space. But we also have a very um, very thriving uh, clinical business where we are seeing a lot of you know doctors uh, that would use these tests for their patients, uh, not just in you know finding out which drug works for them, but also in terms of solving like a diagnostic odyssey and things like that. So today, I think we are maybe what we call as a full stack genomics company, and that's where we are today. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for that lovely um, background. And, you know, I agree. I think we're a full stack genomics company now. Uh, Dr. Jenny, do you want to speak a little bit about your, your journey um, and your practice in the U.S. and then your experience now here in India? Sure. Yeah. So thank you, first of all, um, Anu and Nirja for having me. I'm excited to join you today. Um, so Actually, genetics is one of the main reasons I decided to go into um, human medicine. I say that because if you had asked uh, elementary age Jenny, I would have told you I was going to be a marine biologist and save the whales, but that, clearly that's not what's happened today. Um, when I took a genetics class in college, I really did fall in love with um, uh, human medicine, and uh, that's partially what brought me here today. Um, so I studied in the U.S., um, 
met and married my husband who is originally from India and uh, went to medical school at University of Maryland um, uh, and decided to take a slightly different uh, journey than a typical doctor. I um, specialized in both internal medicine and pediatrics. Um, so it took me a little longer, but I'm really happy that I decided to go that route because it's really uh, helps me be able to treat more people. Um, and then some point uh, we've we decided to make the journey across uh, oceans to uh, land in India and start our own company here. Um, already, uh, my husband and I were kind of working together, I in the clinical space and he in the research space with uh, something called lifestyle medicine. So um, Anu kind of touched upon it already, but basically um, it is using non-pill-based treatments uh, like um, dietary changes, fasting, meditation, and I'll probably touch a little more on this later to, uh, to change your overall health and hopefully your in, improve your lifespan. So um, we started a little bit in the US, but decided to continue it in India. And so that's what brought us here almost exactly actually three years ago, uh, we came to Mumbai. Um, and really excited that there is um, more and more uh, emphasis on genetic testing and not just um, for deciding what diseases a person may or may not develop later on in life or in a child's case, what they are, were born with, but um, it really is guiding our treatment now and we're able to recommend uh, new and improved treatments and better treatments so people have a healthier and longer life. So genetic testing is exciting. I definitely think it's the wave of the future for clinical medicine. So uh, it's exciting. It's good. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I do agree. It's exciting to hear the approach of, you know, non-pill based treatment, because I think it's much needed where we kind of move away a little bit from the pharmacal um, medications that we tend to use. Um, so there's been a lot of research on the blue zones around the world and about longevity. So Dr. Shani, can you shed some light on you know, what were the most important things that we have learned from, you know, uh, these areas where we have seen a lot of sanitarians um, and we've seen that, there, you know, there's definitely uh, people live a longer and a much healthier life. So what have we learned from research in these areas across the world? Yeah, these are really fascinating groups of people. Um, there's uh, different kind of hotspots, uh, Greece, Japan, um, Southern California, um, Italy, and I'm probably forgetting another one, but basically they all have kind of general things in common. Um, the most, uh, the one that's most interesting to us as a company, because we, we talk about this so much is, um, a, a mostly plant-based diet. So this does not mean that they're vegan. Um, although, uh, they, you know, they eat less, uh, animal-based products, but they still do have some, a little bit of meat, a little bit of dairy, here and there, a little bit of egg here and there, but 90, probably 90, 95% of their diet is plant-based. And more and more medical research is showing that a, a mostly plant-based diet, um, to make a long story short, reduces the level of inflammation in your body. So mm -hmm. it allows you to live healthier with less disease. So those that was the big thing that is across the blue zones, but also these people live in a cleaner, less polluted environment, they have less stress, which I think is actually a huge, huge thing that we all need to keep in mind. Uh, they, they walk more, they, um, they stay active well into their 80s, 90s, 100s, um, whether it's gardening or cooking or, or whatever. Um, so they, they just have kind of happier. Um, and mm -hmm. as you had mentioned, or as we had been talking about earlier, they have a better health span, not necessarily lifespan. So they're, they're living life to the fullest. And that's, I think we should all aspire to be, make our own blue zones at home. Absolutely. So what we understand from this is that there are, um, you know, many non-genetic factors that we are looking at that contributes to, um, you know, overall health span, which is, you know, the number of years somebody lives healthily. Um, and also, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the gut microbe that there's been a lot of research around the gut microbe and how does that 
influence our overall health, but also our longevity. So uh, I know if you could speak a little bit about, you know, what is the gut microbe? How do we test for it? And and also, uh, you know, does this remain the same throughout our lifetime? Yeah. So thanks, Nija. I think, you know, it's interesting. And maybe I'll just talk a little bit about, um, you know, since you were talking about blue zones and all that, I think one of the things that we had started was the social thing where we said, you know, is it the role of influence of genetics or or lifestyle or or both? And I think uh, what's interesting is, as we start seeing is is a combination of the two, right? And and uh, since you asked about the gut microbiome, I think that was a that was something that we recently uh, launched about a few months ago, and we feel that increasingly we are seeing a lot of connection between the, the gut microbiome as well as disease risk and longevity. Right? So you want to understand, you know, what kind of microbes you have in your gut. Now you can also, other than the gut microbiome, there are other microbiomes that you can look at, which could be your, you know, the, the oral microbiome. You can look at other uh, microbiomes as well. But the gut microbiome is, is a very good predictor of a lot of different things, right? You want to understand, you know, what kind of uh, bacteria, fungi, viruses, and others that are there currently residing with you. I mean, you're not just a human. I think you have a lot of microbes that live within you, right? And these microbes also show, are very nicely correlated to disease risk. They're also correlated to many other things. And, and, and um, you know, basically what you're doing is you're taking a sample. And how you take a sample is basically you take in the case of the gut microbiome, typically you would take a, a stool sample and you take the sample, which comes in a little box, you know, similar to what you would do with you know, other tests, but it comes to you, you take a little, uh, little of the stool uh, sample and then you run what we call as a metagenomics. Right? So you're basically looking at all the microbes that are there, you're looking at the signatures for each of these. And then you can basically say, you can quantify and say, you know, you have, this much of permicutes, this much of proteobacteria or, or different kinds of uh, bacteria that you have or different viruses and others. But it's not just about saying you have these bacteria and fungi, but you want to also correlate that to disease risk, right? So you can see that, you know, is there, uh, are you seeing a little bit of, uh, you know, the propensity towards type 2 diabetes or obesity or, or even depression and other such things? So you do that, like a correlation between um, disease risk and these microbes. And then you are also looking at certain kinds of deficiencies in terms of your nutrition deficiencies, uh, vitamins and a few other things. So all of that is given. Then we can also find out what you can do to actually counter that. Right? So for instance, if you have, you have certain kinds of bacteria that are high, you want to be able to take in uh, either a probiotic or, or other foods that can sort of supplement or, or can manage that. The other question that you asked, which was basically, does it remain the same? And I can tell you that I've done it you know, at least four or five times by now. And I can very clearly tell that it doesn't remain the same, right? And it doesn't remain the same because unless, of course, you are that person who doesn't change anything in their diet, doesn't change anything in terms of their stress levels and doesn't change anything in terms of sleep and other things, which is almost practically impossible, right? But, um, you know, I could see that when I was on a normal diet, that my you know microbiome was very stable. It showed great. You know you you look like you're doing all the right things. And then during Diwali, when I changed my um, you know habits and and I was saying you know a little bit of cheat day became a few days of cheat days. I think you could start seeing that it said that you're eating a carbohydrate-rich diet. It showed that your my microbiome was a little unstable and so on. So I think that's what you can see that there the gut microbiome can be uh, can change um, and change as soon as you change you know, any of these external parameters that are that are there today. And genetics also, of course, also plays a role because that sort of predisposes you to certain of these things. So I think that is where we are. And I think more and more we are seeing correlation with, um, with your longevity and with, with disease risk and so on. So as we understand it more, I think we'll be able to also see many more newer types of therapies that can also be brought in to be able to manage uh, these conditions of the gut microbiome. So it's interesting that the microbiome actually tells you what you truly are, right? It tells you what you're truly doing to yourself, no matter what the client tells you or the patient tells the doctor. Um, so that is an interesting way to calibrate and to validate what exactly you are doing to yourself. 
Um, well, thank you for you know giving us a detailed explanation on that. Um, Dr. Jenny, so in as a genetic counselor, we do see a lot of cases in pediatrics where we are seeing an increasing number of kids who are getting di diagnosed with diabetes or pancreatitis or even you know ADHD, autism, or any other inflammatory conditions as well. So we're constantly seeing these numbers rise and more diagnoses happen. Uh, what are your recommendations in terms of improving lifestyle and diet that would also help some of these children reduce the risk? And what do you think are the contributing factors for these? Yeah, so I mean, there's, uh, of course, everyone is born with uh, a genetic predisposition um, to certain disease states, um, but the good news is uh, scientists and doctors have realized that there's something called epigenetics. So um, basically that mm -hmm. means, yes, you have the framework's not going to change, but there are certain um, protein-making parts of your, your genome that can be turned on and and off, uh, meaning uh, certain diseases, if you're, let's say you may uh, have a high risk of developing diabetes in the future, type 2 diabetes in the future, um, if you change your lifestyle, if you change your daily habits, uh, amongst other things, then that genetic uh, risk can be turned off later on, which is, um, was a huge and still is a huge discovery. So it doesn't mean you are, everything's set in stone, basically. So that's what, you know, if there's uh, kiddos that we see that come to us that um, are a little overweight, maybe a little obese, or they've started to develop signs of something that runs in their family or something even that was found on a blood test or even a newborn screen, um, there's hope for them that things can be changed by making positive changes in their life. So I kind of like the blue zones, um, the most important thing we talk about is, is diet changes. So uh, again, not trying to make everyone vegan. Um, and more, uh, something I should have mentioned earlier, more whole foods. So um, meaning less processed or not processed at all. So um, something that has additives or preservatives or has been broken down. So the nutritional value is completely gone is just empty calories and can actually also contribute to, to um, inflammation and just negative effects on the child. So having uh, good whole fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, uh, nuts, seeds, et cetera, um, and making those mostly plants, um, in the long run, you'll almost guarantee to see um, positive changes, less disease. And then also um, easier said than done, but reducing, trying to reduce stress, allowing more playtime, um, if possible, allowing vacation. You don't need to go somewhere fancy, but allow your child just to be a kid. Um, exercise doesn't have to be a specific sport, just going out and going to the garden and playing, taking a walk with the family. Um, and uh, sleep, 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 sleep. I think we as doctors forget to tell people how, and we ourselves forget to focus on how important sleep is. So getting good quality sleep, making sure your child doesn't stare at a screen right before they go to bed or wake up and stare at a screen right away. Um, read them books, let them read books, let them kind of gently transition into nighttime and, and have an appropriate hour, uh, number of hours of sleep as well. Um, all these things are, mostly controllable and you can kind of move towards these goals over time. We don't expect it to happen overnight. Uh, those are things that can help significantly. We've seen it help significantly uh, in our kiddos and in our adult patients too. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it's nice to be able to offer something um, treatment that doesn't mean, you know, giving injections or, or taking pills or liquids. So hopefully all of us as physicians will head in that direction in the future. Well, thank you. Those are, I think, important tips to remember in terms of improving overall quality of life and also health span. Um, and yes, it's a more holistic approach to, you know, uh, living healthily. So that definitely helps. You mentioned epigenetics. Um, Anu, can you talk a little bit about what is epigenetics and how can we test for it? Um, and is there is there a method that we can utilize to understand how our environment is influencing our genetics? Yeah, so I think, you know, Dr. Jenny explained uh, what epigenetics is, um, that you're basically trying to understand the influence of environment on your uh, on your genome, not necessarily in terms of what you inherited. 
So if you think about it in very simple terms, you are inheriting certain things that come from your parents, right? And that's what you would look at for, for instance, in a genome patri and others. But we also see that, you know, in the whole, when you look at the whole genome, for instance, there are certain parts uh, that either when you look at it from a methylation point of view or anything else, you'll be able to actually study that, right? So just like, you know, when you are, uh, when you are looking at all of this, you can now look at certain markers that will show you whether these are, these particular areas are turned on or turned off, right? Um, and that's what we are doing in, in, in an epigenetics test, right? So you can do two things. One, you can understand uh, what your biological age is uh, today versus your chronological age. Your chronological age is what you're born, if you're born in 1972, you are probably like 51 years of age today. But it is possible that if you have done the right things to your body, that you are, you know, maybe in your 40s, or if you have done the wrong things, you are in your 60s or 70s, right? So that is one thing that you can understand using an epigenetic study because you're looking at all of this and it weighs, you're, you're basically creating a biological clock, right? So that's number one. The second thing is you want to also understand specific areas on where certain things have, you know, what has happened today based on your lifestyle. And you can also study that and do a detailed analysis of that. So the way we would do this is typically there is, um, you know, there are either you create your own customized version of the chip Mm -hmm. Or you, and, and by a chip, I mean a microarray chip, or you're looking at a more off-the-shelf product like an Epic chip, right? So you're you're taking all of that and you're being able to run these tests and you're you're going to be doing that similar to what you have normally done with like a genome patri, but you're looking at a different analysis altogether. And that's what we would be doing, right? So your technology is similar, but what you're studying in terms of the genome on what on that mm -hmm. particular area is different. And so that's what we would be doing. And then the idea is really that how do you help people with personalized way of saying, can you change certain things? What are the vitamins that, that are currently needed and things like that? What are the nutrition needs that you have? And also, I think when people start measuring, they're able to see what has changed, right? So if today, if you can start measuring and saying that, okay, maybe today I'm it is showing 60, but two months later, I see that it has become... 55, I think I'll be motivated to, you know, get back to where my current age is or even younger, right? So if we can reverse uh, our, you know, our aging, I think then we would have solved the problem of, you know, reaching uh, 120 years or, or more or getting to Nirvana. Of course, we are not yet anywhere close to that. But at least I think once we start understanding, you know, how we mm -hmm. are doing, uh, you know, in terms of your changes in lifestyle and what effect it has, I think that measurement, that quantification of it becomes a lot more motivating for people. And like yes. you mentioned, like the gut microbiome doesn't lie. I think your epigenome will help you to be able to see what you've done uh, actually mm -hmm. in writing, right? So I think those are <laughs> that we have started to see. That's interesting. Very, very fascinating to hear this. And I think, yes, it's a it's a great way to measure, you know, where we stand and, and how, what, we are in what's lying ahead of us. Um, so in terms of when you look at the overall health span versus lifespan conversation and think of a population, we do know that there is a huge burden of genetic disorders, especially in the pediatric settings in India, right? So how, how do we tackle that? What kind of tests are usually offered um, in a pediatric setting? So I think I'll let both of you take up that question. Um, so I can speak to, um, I can start, I guess, and then Anu, you can continue. So uh, there's different stages in pediatrics that you can um, offer testing to parents and to the, to the children. So there's um, preconception testing. So um, the father and the mother, potential father and mother are test, their own uh, genomes are tested, their own genetic risk for disease is tested, and then kind of calculated what the, the risk for their offspring, their, their uh, future children would be of certain genetic diseases. So that can help um, guide, you know, I guess expectations and uh, things to look out for, uh, for future pregnancies. And also, um, you know, if sometimes it's, after the fact, if there's been one child born with a genetic illness, then uh, the testing can be done for future siblings of this child. Um, then there's prenatal testing, which is when um, the mom is already pregnant. And so there's non-invasive testing, which is uh, the NIPT, which is a blood test. Mm -hmm. And that looks at 
the, the mother's cells and the baby's cells that are in her bloodstream and determines, uh, again, um, the risk of this actual, the baby's actual risk of uh, certain chromosomal abnormalities like Down syndrome, uh, things like that. Um, and then that can further be confirmed by more invasive testing like amniocentesis, uh, which looks at the amniotic fluid and that gives a more conclusive, although still never 100%, um, because I think we had mentioned the other day, a lot of times what's seen on the test results, you really have to see the features of the child or the physical, um, like how certain systems in their body work. And that mm -hmm. isn't really known for sure until they're actually born. Um, and then finally, there's, uh, not finally, but as in early life, there's neonatal screening. So um, in a lot of countries and India more and more now, which is good, they have um, the newborn screen. So just a small amount of blood is taken uh, from the baby from a heel stick. Um, and from that tiny, couple tiny drops of blood, we can tell so much information about um, metabolic diseases, again, genetic diseases and things that basically, if we know about it early, we can um, start the treatment right away. And there are many examples, but uh, thyroid hypothyroidism is a great example. Mm -hmm. uh, if you start the baby on treatment immediately, then he or she will live a completely normal life. Um, and then there's certain enzyme deficiencies. If you replace the enzyme or if you leave the certain, um, you have a certain diet, then again, the baby will live a totally normal life. So it's, it's amazing that medicine has come this far because, you know, I guess like 40, 50, uh, unfortunately, a lot of these children would not have normal lives. So it's great mm -hmm. that we have that ability now. And I'm happy to see it happening more and more in India. Um, and of course, other parts of the world, I think, and we'll probably, I'm sure you'll ask us this later, but the access to this can be an issue. Um, but I know Anu is, and her team are working on making that better for people. So, so that's good. Absolutely. Maybe Anu, what has been your, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You ask the question. I thought you'd, I'll just add to that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, I was curious to understand what was your experience in, you know, the last 20 years of being in genomics? Have you seen the uptake or the, is there more interest in, and in, you know, the, the, the genomics application, especially in clinical medicine? Well, absolutely. I think we have started seeing, and I wouldn't say in the last 20 years, in the last three, four years, we've started seeing a huge mm -hmm. spur, right? Like, I think there's been a lot more acceptance. I think people have started yeah. the value of, of these tests and therefore both in clinical practice, but also in preventive uh, space. We have seen that. Now, one of the things, and I think Dr. Jenny explained all the tests really well, but maybe I thought I'll add a couple of points, which... You know, in India, we do a lot. There are a lot of arranged marriages, right? So you look at a lot of different things. You're looking at, you know, compatibility and all of that. But there's one thing that I think I wish more people would look at, which would be the preconception uh, testing, because you know, you don't want you're anyway you don't know the person, so you'd rather mm -hmm. at least get that part right, right, because that's ultimately the health of your family. Um, sure. You know, there are also a lot of consanguineous marriages in India, and I mm -hmm. feel that if we are able to actually you know, let people know why there shouldn't be those uh, with real examples. I think you'll see less of that happening. Um, so I think, you know, in the case of arranged marriage, you know, you look at your Janam Patri, but you should probably also look at your Genome Patri and, and, and Absolutely. Uh, things as well, right? Uh, so that would be one point I wanted to add. The second thing that I was also saying is, um, seeing is that, you know, while there are lots of these tests, I think we, there are, um, there are not that many people like Dr. Jenny, like there are now an increasing number of doctors who understand genetics. But I think, you know, that area where if we can get more educational content out there, because everybody is a busy doctor, if we can get them to understand more of genetics, I think it will help everybody because it's everybody wants best solutions for their patients. Um, but in terms of the just the overall testing and what we have seen, I think uh, OBGYNs and pediatricians and oncologists are the ones that use these the most across the country. Mm -hmm. And we are also seeing a lot of conditions like epilepsy and others that are more in the neuro space um, that we are also starting to see a lot more uh, you know, people, doctors, and uh, wanting to understand solutions because sometimes 
the symptoms might be very similar, mm -hmm. but you want to be able to understand, you know, what is causing that, right? So understanding that uh, brings a lot of closure to families. And I think nobody understands that more, let's say, like you do, Neja, um, because you are counseling a lot of these, these par mm -hmm. parents and families. And uh, I think that brings another point that, you know, yeah. there's probably a connection that can be created because of the genetic counseling family that has been created across the country. Yes. And I think the number of counselors that we have today uh, can actually be that nice bridge between the medical mm -hmm. professionals as well as uh, what you need in the genetic testing space. That's that's very true. That's one of the major roles that we see as genetic counselors is to advocate for the patient and also bridge that gap between the clinicians and the patients. And of course, we need a lot more genetic counselors to the number of you know people that we are serving right now. Um, and I do agree. I think we have definitely seen a shift in thought process where we are seeing more families taking up uh, preconception genetic testing, carrier screening prior to getting married. And it's a very nice change in thought process and practice that we are seeing. I myself have seen a couple of people who, you know, have come in and said we want to consider marriage only if everything goes well with the genetic testing and we don't have a risk of, you know, an autosomal recessive condition. So that's definitely a good shift. And I think it also goes back to the awareness that you were saying that we need to educate more, put out more educational content out there for it. Um, so let's talk about pharmacogenomics here in a bit, because I think, again, longevity relates to, you know, a lot of drugs that we are taking and how do we circumvent some of these diseases that we have, of course, goes back to, you know, healthier life. So how do you describe, you know, the application of pharmacogenomics right now in the clinical setting and what are we able to offer? So I, I think pharmacogenomics, uh, basically, which is looking at a person's response to certain medications and if the medications will work for them or if they need a certain dose, um, a higher dose, a lower dose based on how they metabolize or how they, um, the medicine is, uh, what's the right word I'm looking for? Process. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for in their body. So some people are process it quickly. So they need a higher dose. Some people don't process it fast enough. So they need a lower dose and some just, it's not compatible with them at all. So they shouldn't even take that medicine. Um, so this is huge in clinical medicine in both, again, both, uh, you know, in the inpatient setting in, in intensive care unit, uh, both adults and kids, but also in outpatient medicine, uh, because unfortunately we spend a lot of time, um, giving different medicines to kind of trial and error to patients. Mm -hmm. um, if we had, and it's there now, but if more and more, if we, if we have uh, as part of the patient's medical record, these are the medicines that I can take. If I take this medicine, I need this dose versus this dose. Um, it's more likely to interact with this medicine. It'll save so much time and money and side effects. Um, I think it's, it's huge. It's, Again, the I keep saying the future of medicine, but it's really exciting because we we end up chasing uh, side effects from medicines with new medicines, and patients stay in the hospital yeah. longer because they've developed a, a kidney issue or a lung issue from certain medicines. Um, and then one other thing that I'm very passionate about is antibiotic resistance. Um, my father was a um, a big researcher in antibiotic resistance in the United States, and so that's something very close to. Um, our heart as in, in our practice. So this way, if we know um, if a patient can take a certain antibiotic, uh, if they'll react well to it, then we can put them at the lowest, safest dose for the shortest period of time. And that will influence not just that patient, but, you know, millions of pe other people. So it's, it's a exciting time in medicine. And I think uh, if, again, if that becomes just like you, you have your child's vaccination record, mm -hmm. or just like you have your your history, your surgical history, your your X-rays, etc. You should also have your your pharmacogenomics report that you carry around with you. Absolutely, I think there's a huge benefit in doing that. Um, Anu, can you talk a little bit about how many drugs can we look at right now? And and I think what Dr. Jennifer said, you know, like antibiotic resistance, like these are important, you know, uh, drugs that we take even in a general setting. And unfortunately, in India, a lot of this is available over the counter. So how can somebody learn about, you know, the drugs that may be well suited for them or may not be well suited and how many of those can we look at right now? 
So currently in MediCamap, which is one of the products that we have, um, we are looking at 165 drugs, right? And these are drugs that have been uh, either approved uh, for pharmacogenomic testing by the US FDA, or, um, and these, we are looking at guidelines that come from the CPIC guidelines, the Swiss Medic, the HMDC, and so on. So there are many different guidelines that different countries and others have created and based on certain evidence that has been created. So that is what we are doing. And the idea really is that if we can create like a easy to read report where doctors can see that if it is green, then whatever is the normal recommended dosage can be given, I think it is fine. Right? But if it is either yellow or uh, orange or red, then you want to also see what needs to change, right? whether it is about changing the dosage, um, like Dr. Jenny said, you know, if you are an ultra metabolizer versus uh, somebody who doesn't metabolize it uh, that fast, there are certain recommendations in terms of how you would take that drug. The other could be that this drug might be toxic for you, and therefore you don't want to, um, to take that, that drug and change it to an alternate drug. So we are seeing that you know, some doctors prefer to do only one specific drug that they are looking at, uh, because in majority of the cases, the drugs don't work on a certain population. And so we are seeing that uh, some doctors want to only look at that, but when they find out that you, you can get a whole profile of your drugs in one, uh, just doing that same test at, at not very different pricing than what you would do for one, I think they are happier to be able to get that because that becomes a, because typically I think if somebody is on cardiac drugs, the chances that they will be also on, on diabetes drugs and others also increase. Right? Similarly, I think when you're looking at other uh, other things, you also want to understand not just for that particular drug, but you also want to understand if there's a drug-drug interaction or if there's a drug-food interaction and so on. So I think uh, this becomes a baseline for a lot of different kinds of way that a doctor can actually help their patient. And, and I think that's why it's becoming a very popular. Uh, and, uh, you know, if we can save, you know, more lives by not having as many reactions, or if we are able to help them get their treatment faster, I think mm -hmm. then we would have done... a a good, you know, a good job and be able to, uh, you know, help the medical professionals a little bit more. Absolutely. Um, so there is definitely more and more, I think, uh, uptake of pharmacogenomics, like you said, especially for the critical patients starting from the from there to, you know, a lot of people who are saying I'm not taking any drugs now, but I, I just want to be prepared in case I need to do that. Um, so in terms of, you know, genomics, as we think of all of these tests that are available, and I think technology has done great in the last decade, you know, in terms of uh, genomic technologies, we've improved a lot and we're able to offer a lot. But what about accessibility? I think especially in a country like India, we still have a, a lot of population that is rural and is not accessing any of these services that we can offer. So what do you think are some of those challenges and how do you find solutions for this? I think I'll take both of your perspectives. I'll start with Anu first. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, we thought of accessibility uh, and affordability and all of that right in the beginning. Uh, so we created a product that is accessible, but unfortunately, I think we realized that it's not just about creating a product. You also have to educate people about using yeah. it. Right? So you have to have the medical, the medical community recommend that to their uh, patients, right? So we have, you know, preventive set of products and then we have the... Um, you know, products that the clinical usage of that, right? Like let's say when you're looking at it from, um, you know, understanding why there's a recurrent abortion or you're trying to understand it from an oncology uh, patient mm -hmm. and so on. Um, now we've made it such that people can order a test in anywhere that a courier can get to you or a post office can get to you. You can get access to the test. So right. we call that the Hargar DNA, right? But uh, I think where we lack today is more how do we get this message across right so maybe mm. one of the places where i don't think we have spent quite enough time is uh, how do we make this in languages that they can understand more than just english and hindi and things like that right so that i think is an important piece that i feel we have not done justice to the second thing mm. is can we create this um, information that we can pass on to the medical community in simpler terms right so we are mm -hmm. we are trying from our side but i think we we need to work together with the medical community to be able to create something that creates more value for them and therefore they can actually be able to pass it on to the patients. And the third thing I think is 
access and affordability are very closely interlinked. Right. So we've always had, so 10 years ago, we created a product that you can order online and get it to your home. But when the price dropped, uh, we saw a jump in the number of people who are looking at it. Right. So I think uh, there are many aspects to accessibility. And I think, you know, it would also be helpful if, for instance, you know, for people who can't afford it, if we can find the right kind of payers, right? whether it's the government, mm -hmm. whether it's insurance or others. And I think that's one area that we are lacking quite a bit today because we don't yet have um, a, a way of uh, somebody paying for these tests. And I think we saw that a large part of what happened in the West was primarily driven by these payers. Uh, so today, I think on LinkedIn, I was just responding to somebody and I said, you know, why is it that we don't have good quality health insurance? I said, it's a chicken and egg situation, right? Like we are, we are trying to, we have a very small base to start off with. People don't want to spend money because they can't spend that kind of money on the cover uh, because they don't see the value of it. And mm -hmm. because of that, you don't have enough coverage. And uh, when you do have somebody who claims insurance, there's too much cost that is attached to that yeah. insurance, right? So I think I was telling them that if you focus more on preventive strategies, it becomes a lot more valuable for individuals mm -hmm. and for the insurance companies. So I don't know what Dr. Jenny has to you know, say about that, but I've, I, that was, those were some of my thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you with the prevention aspect. So yes, uh, in this case, the upfront cost may be a little more for an individual or for an insurance company, but if you look at the bigger picture, if you can um, prevent diseases that can cause a lot of disease burden, meaning hospitalization, lots of medications, um, long-term treatments, and early early mortality, like earlier death, then uh, if you can prevent that with a one-time, uh, at the time, relatively high cost, but down the line, it's minimal compared to the amount of money you'd have to spend, uh, the family would have to spend, or the hospital would have to spend, for example. So that's really important, uh, I guess, to make the insurance companies and maybe someday the government aware of how cost-effective this is. Um, if you look, another example is uh, in the West, um, I study in the US, so I can speak to the US. We, uh, it's mandated that every newborn gets this newborn screen and it's mm -hmm. covered by, uh, by government insurance or by private insurance, whichever way. But every child gets that. And same in, uh, in Europe, I believe also, at least the UK, I know. So, um, you know, that saves so many lives and, and saves so much uh, money, and again, in terms of disease burden and, of course, uh, psych psychological burden for the families, uh, et cetera. Um, so that would be a great goal to move towards. Um, I know that's a big undertaking in a country that has such a huge population and you know, there's big cities and small cities and rural so that, you know, that's not an easy task, but that's a great goal. Um, so hopefully at some point it'll get to that. Uh, I think it's just awareness, uh, awareness again of the government, mm. but also awareness of doctors. Uh, we need to be better about offering these tests to our patients um, and being aware of the implications of offering the test and how much it can help people, not just uh, clinically, but uh, in their lifestyle. Um, and then patients need to be aware to, uh, they need to have the education to ask for it. If their doctor's not aware, then they should say, hey, what about, I, I heard about this pharmacogenomics test, or I heard about, um, you know, this this test for, before I get married to this person, I just want to know maybe uh, we can find out how our genetic compatibility is. So I think it's awareness on all several levels that will help um, help genetic testing be more available throughout the country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I think that's really well put together. I think those are very important points that we all work towards. And um, in with respect to the newborn screening, I know there's you know more discussions about implementing that, um, you know, as a part of the uh, routine healthcare in all hospitals. And I'm we're all hoping that it, you know we get there soon. Um, so now that the human genome is fully sequenced, where do you think? you know, the future lies uh, with human genetics. And again, I'll let you both answer that from both clinical as well as the industrial perspective. You want to go first, Dr. Jenny, or, or I'm happy to take uh, Yeah, you can go first. Okay. 
So I, I think that what what we are starting to see, both from a technology perspective, and of course, you know, the human genome is is now fully 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 sequenced. We have a good reference, but there is still um, I think more data that needs to be got for some parts of the populations that I feel is important, which will continue, right? So that baseline in terms of how do you create better reference population, I think is is very important. So that's definitely still something that. While it is fully sequenced, we still yeah. don't have it for all populations in a in a way that is you know clinically actionable for everybody, right? So that's number one. The second thing is that we have started seeing more of a lot of these um, understanding of let's say methylation and the epigenetics mm-hmm. and all that. We're starting to see that, but we'll start seeing it in a way that will become more accessible and affordable for the average consumer. Because we are seeing that this is something that's still a very niche uh, segment. There are very few people who understand because I think from a science perspective, we've only recently understood that. So we'll start seeing more of that. I think the gut microbiome, if you start seeing the therapies that attach itself to it, whether it's fecal implants and, and, and other therapies that are there, I think you'll see a lot more of it integrated into clinical practice. Uh, on the uh, screening side and all, I think uh, clearly, I think the government, Indian government has also come up with some Nidan Kendras and others for mm-hmm. um, newborn screening and others. And I think once we show there is real value, I think we'll start seeing that, you know, genetics is going to become a more, you know, it's going to be knit into the whole medical fabric. So you'll be able to see that if you have that history and all that. But I feel that the real value will be if this becomes part of your EMR. Uh, at birth, you sequence a baby as soon as they're born. And I know that, you know, Harvard has done a few studies and a few other places they've done that. But if you can do it from the time somebody is born or even prior to that for the the parents, then I think you are able to, you know, create a decision-making system for medical professionals, for the individuals. And I think with AI, you are able to put these pieces together, right? So one of the things, for instance, what we are doing is connecting the dots between your genetic profile, your blood markers, and your other parameters, I think we can create those kind of decision-making systems and, and make it more real-time, right? So I think that's where mm-hmm. we see that this will become a lot more real-time. So your baseline, which is there, uh, which is created at birth, can then be used to be able to say what happens later, right? So if you've gotten something, then you just look at changing those lines, but use AI to be able to then help you predict what mm-hmm. next to be done. So I think that's where I think we are headed. Um, you know, maybe Dr. Jenny can give us a more realistic view of where we are. Yeah, I, I mean, it's um, it's exciting that, you know, the human genome is is now known and even more exciting to me is the, the epigenetics aspect um, that uh, you can modify how your life will will end up and how long your life will be and how good your life will be, how healthy it will be, um, now that we have more information in our pockets. Um, in our practice, we're very focused on preventative medicine. Uh, so, you know, in, I think for up until very recently, most stock medicine. So you, you come with a symptom, you come with a disease and we treat it. Um, but we focus on preventing that disease from even happening, preventing that pain, preventing uh, you from following the footsteps of your family members that had to suffer with uh, diseases, uh, you know, for the second half or even the beginning of their life. So now that we have those tools, uh, we can focus more on preventative care, um, which is, you know, which is our passion, just making people healthier, have a better health span. Um, the other thing that's exciting about knowing more about uh, human genetics in general is that all these, um, again, both adults and kids that have these unknown uh, diseases, now we can get it down to the specific genetic foci, to the foci, to that small area that one, maybe that one particular gene that's been affected. Um, if, if it is a one gene mutation, then it can actually be treated. And, you know, these really hopeless cases can actually be cured. Um, and not just genetic diseases, but, but certain cancers and uh, now we're seeing you know, certain viruses, things like that. So that's also really exciting. It's like a new wave of medicine. Um, so lots of hope, I guess, uh, out of 
uh, genetics, um, with more knowledge, we can provide a lot more hope to our patients. It's, it's very futuristic, I would say, but also very exciting as genetic counselors, you know, for us to, um, like what Anna said, we, we are often, uh, you know, meeting these families in Lent and, you know, really connect with them for sometimes over a span of a few years also, because we are following up with a lot of these clients. And so it's, it's, it's exciting to see more and more options. I know that, you know, SMA now, there's a drug that is in place for DMD, there are trials going on. So it's nice to see uh, and even in the preventative space, you know, we can do so much more than just telling people that, oh, there's a predisposition now, right? So the gut microbe or the epigenetics, these things add so much value in that predisposition and then figuring out how to keep things, um, you know, going from there. Um, so it's very exciting to see all of the progress, but it also brings the biggest concern for us as genetic counselors is the ethical use, like what Anu mentioned, you know, ideally in a in a futuristic scenario, you would want everybody to be uh, sequenced and understand what the risks are and what we can do about it. But it also comes with a lot of data that needs to be protected and put in place um, and have checks, you know, to make sure that it's ethically done. So what is, you know, your take in terms of what are the steps that should be mandatory in as we are progressing more towards getting genetics more and more integrated into the medical system? So maybe I can, I can, uh you know, take a, sh a shot at it uh, in this. I think there is um, clearly, I think there are two aspects, right? One is that, you know, we would never have been where we are today if there wasn't data that supported any of the research that was done, right? So if there weren't any enough studies that would say that, you know, this particular mutation is, uh, you know, either causing uh, a particular disease or is correlated with a particular disease, I think we wouldn't be where we are today. We wouldn't be able mm -hmm. to offer any of the tests. Right? So you can sequence all you want, but if you don't have data that supports it, you can't. Right? So that's number one, that you know you do need studies, you do need uh, data, but you don't need data that is necessarily connected to individuals. right? So you need, you need these studies. And I think that's where people need to understand that there is a difference between data that is used in a large anonymized study versus data that is used to identify you and therefore be able to punish you or or not give you certain things that you 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 ought to be given right for instance if somebody uses this data to not give you a job or they use this uh, data to not give you insurance uh, then i think it's a problem right uh, but if they are using if consented data, which consumers or patients say that I'm okay to use anonymized data for research is used. I don't think most people have a problem with that, right? So if people are okay with saying, you know, I'm giving this data, use it in an ethical manner to be able to understand, you know, the cause of disease or, or whether a drug will work for a particular population who has this mutation or not. I think that's a different thing than saying, you know, I did not give you my consent for, or I don't understand what consent is. And, mm -hmm. um, and therefore, and then my data is being given out to an insurance company or somebody else to deny me insurance or deny me a job, then that's a problem. So I think, you know, we need to separate these out. And from an ethical perspective, I think consent is important. What kind of consent you take from a minor versus a person who's an adult to help them understand what a genetic test is, and to make sure that they understand that this data, if used, what you know, where would it be used and how you would use that. Right. So those are the kind of things that if you do correctly, I think we'll be able to progress both in terms of how we do more research studies, but also in terms of how we would actually get uh, you know, high quality of data without compromising what an individual um, might face if that data was connected to employment, insurance, or anything else. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, I, I totally agree with what Anu said. I think you have to walk a fine line between um, releasing all of, you know, pages and pages mm -hmm. of uh, genetic data and individuals, um, because un until everyone is informed about what it actually means, which of course is impossible, uh, it can't be interpreted correctly. So um, it this again, I keep going back to epigenetics and environmental influences, but if a, I don't know, an insurance company sees that this person is more predisposed to um, a certain type of cancer or um, diabetes or thyroid condition or um, 
uh, I don't know, male pattern baldness or something. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that that, that is 100% what's going to happen. So it should absolutely not be used against them for uh, mm-hmm. injuring or hiring or, or even marriage, honestly. Uh, like We talked about genetic testing before marriage, and, uh, but that everyone has to understand that just because you know the woman has this and the man has this doesn't mean that it's absolutely going to happen. Nothing is set in stone and things can be changed by your environment and by your, your everyday practices for the better. So that's, you know, the awareness is really important. Otherwise it could be a huge ethical dilemma and uh, people start saying, you know, that one, you know, possibility of that one genetic disease occurring later on when you turn 90, therefore you can't live in this apartment building or you can't have this job or you can't run for office. Um, so that, yeah, I think that's the biggest issue we'll, we'll be facing with that. And obviously consent comes before all of that. So I totally agree. So I think maybe, yeah. you know, one thing that maybe um, is, you know, we, we might want to differentiate between the two. We mentioned the premarital testing. I think, you know, people need to understand the difference between testing it so that as a family that recessive condition doesn't become mm-hmm. a reality versus something that, let's say I have a risk for diabetes, which is a complex disease as an interplay of, of uh, environment and and uh, uh, and your genetics. I think people mm-hmm. need to understand that the reason why we would test for a thalassemia for both the partners is because the partners will have to live with a child that might have that condition. And if they're okay with that, right. I think then it is fine. If they're not okay with it, I think they need to understand. Right? So I think there is slight difference between people who have a single gene, like a single mutation that potentially can be a problem for them versus something that may be a possibility, you know, if they mm-hmm. do all the wrong things and so on. So I think that's something that maybe we can, you know, hopefully we can educate uh, people about. Uh, I don't know what, Nija, what do you think about about that well that's the main reason why i completely agree but that's the main reason why we you know emphasize on the pre-test genetic counseling is because we we facilitate that decision making with the clients and we make sure that they have the right information before they have made the decisions i've definitely seen people who have looked at you know the carrier screening because they want to understand risks that can be inherited and can get passed on versus you know couples who come in later and say oh we just want to understand i've also seen patients who you know come in and said we we want to have a trial but we want to understand what is our own risk of predisposing you know diseases like diabetes or cholesterol or what does our future look like like we are healthy right now but are we predisposed to any disorders before we plan a family and i think that's also putting things in place is that you want to be healthy to raise a family that is healthy right so it's that's the reason why we emphasize on the pre-test genetic counseling so they have all this information before they make a decision and more importantly they understand the implications and the possible options they have after the reports come in based on what we find um and that really helps them make the right decisions for themselves based on their situations and perspectives and i think another good point dr jenny brought up is is the cultural and the social uh, stigma that can get associated with some of these We've definitely heard conversations about, you know, I have a skin disease and this is something that can be used against me or is currently being used against me. Even people with a family history say that they face a challenge with these things. So um, it's very important to educate because they don't always understand that just because you have a father who has vitiligo that you will end up developing vitiligo. No. So I think educating that helps in alleviating some of the stigma that gets associated with it and the concerns of you know what the society would think or what you know what we should be doing going forward um so yes i think education is the key here to you know can make a lot of these things easier and i think consent has to happen in vernacular languages as well which i think something you mentioned is understanding consent is very important so that is something that we need to work towards as clinicians as um, you know, labs is also to make sure that consents can happen in, in a language that people understand and something that is easy for people to understand. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, both of you. I think it was a wonderful conversation and a lot of good insights that I think both of you have shared. Um, so since it's a custom that we always do a rapid fire in uh, genomic GAFSHAP, I'm going to ask a rapid fire question to both of you. Uh, what is your most favorite longevity book? Um, Anu, you can go first. 
Well, it used to be Sinclair and now David Sinclair's, and now it has become a Peter Atiyah. So. All right. <laughs> Dr. Jenny, what is your favorite longevity book? It's called How Not to Die. Oh, I have mm-hmm. that book. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> book, and it, I like it because it divides it up by uh, like body system and different, and mm-hmm. how you can, sp- if you are specifically prone, you know, in your family to liver disease or lung disease, you can kind of target those. You don't have to read the entire book. But I do recommend reading the entire book. It's a good book. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you both for your time today. This was a wonderful conversation and I look forward to more uh, of these, you know, uh, insightful conversations with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so thank much. You, yeah. Thank you. Thanks.